wave of quarantined evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Well, happy new year, everyone. We made it through 2021. Unfortunately, it's not looking like 2022 is going to be much better at the moment, But uh, let's hope for the best and prepare for the worst. And it's off topic, but I really wanted to take a moment to remember the amazing Betty White. I'm so crushed that she did not make it to her 100th birthday celebration. Um, She was just a remarkable actress. She actually seemed to genuinely care about people She believed everyone should be treated with dignity, no matter the color of their skin or what people they loved or how they identified. She just thought people were people, which is what I wish everyone could do. And so, yeah, and she was just such a fierce and wonderful light. And um, I definitely consider her to have been someone I would have looked up to or that I did look up to. Um, And I'm just really, really sad that she's gone. And um, I just, I wanted to put that out there because she was really amazing. Even though she wasn't uh, particularly, as far as I know, uh, interested in science per se. Okay, so as always, tonight I will try and give you a bit of COVID news And then some stories that I hope are distracting or interesting or even fun um, in order to kind of mitigate. (laughs) And so let's start out tonight with our weekly COVID-19 roundup. First off, some good news from the CDC's morbidity and mortality report. Well, it would be good news if more people actually paid attention to our, um, you know, actual science these days and weren't so resistant to the truth. And so a retrospective cohort of over 40,000 pregnant women has shown that COVID-19 vaccinations are not associated with either preterm birth or small for gestational age at overall birth. And so the study looked at data from eight vaccine safety data link healthcare organizations in order to assess the risk for preterm and SGA at birth among both vaccinated and unvaccinated pregnant women. Single gestation periods, basically only one baby, with estimated start or last menstrual period during May 17th to October 24th, 2020, were included. Among the 46,079 eligible births, um, again, others were excluded for things like um, having twins or triplets or something like that, uh, for being outside of the age range they were looking at, um, and for being outside of the actual date range. 
10,064 pregnant women received one or more COVID-19 vaccine doses during pregnancy between December 15, 2020 and July 22, 2021. 172 received the first or only dose during the first trimester, 3,668 in the second trimester, and 6,224 in the third trimester. Among 9,640 women who received mRNA vaccines during pregnancy, 1,759 received one dose and 7,881 received two doses. 424 received the Johnson & Johnson single vaccine. Overall prevalence of preterm birth and SGA at birth were 6.6 and 8.2 per 100 live births in the entire cohort. Now, there are limitations to the study, obviously, as it was based on data from an aggregate source, which doesn't query possible co-founders or confounders, such as the history of preterm or SGA at birth. So if you had already had that, you might be more prone to having it again, or whether the uh, patients had potentially been previously infected with COVID and other confounders. But the absolute risk for severe morbidity associated with COVID-19, while low in terms of pregnancy, it actually turns out that for women who do not receive a vaccine and who develop symptomatic COVID-19 during pregnancy, they have more than a two-fold increased risk for intensive care admission, invasive ventilation, and extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, as well as a 70% increased risk of death compared with non-pregnant women with symptomatic infections. Because, of course, you know, if you are pregnant and you get symptomatic COVID-19, if you're, especially later on in your pregnancy, you're already having trouble breathing because often the baby is pushing your diaphragm further up in your rib cage or towards your rib cage. And so it's already hard enough to try and breathe when you're pregnant and fully healthy. But if you also add in respiratory issues from COVID-19, that is bad news. So if you know anyone who is pregnant or thinking of becoming pregnant and is worried about vaccination, they should be assured that the vaccine is safe. And it actually may even confer some protection to the newborn as antibodies have been found in cord blood. And so, yeah. That is a good study to be really kind of um, clear about the fact that this is not affecting pregnant women. And in fact, uh, having COVID while pregnant and not being vaccinated actually really increases your risk if you become symptomatic. And so definitely uh, need to be getting this out there because a lot of pregnant women are still vaccine hesitant. And, um, you know, with reason, because obviously uh, a lot of women when they're pregnant are told not to take this and that and the other thing because it might affect the child. So I definitely don't think that that is, um, you know, a completely unfounded concern, 
but these kinds of studies show that it's not a giant concern and that these women do just as well as um, women who didn't have COVID-19. Um, and so, yeah. Okay. So let's, let's finish up with that good news and let's take a minute to talk about some bungling this week by the CDC. Now, this is a good time for the uh, views and opinions to play. So the next part is my particular opinion. It is mine and mine alone. Um, and so I feel like the new CDC guidelines uh, for shortening the um, isolation time for people and for no longer requiring a test at the end in order to return to daily life is basically due to pressure from uh, especially the airlines and other business leaders who keep pressing this idea that people should just get back to work. Meanwhile, they aren't going to work. They're telecommuting. They're doing whatever it is that they do where they don't even have to go to an office, never mind have to go and interact with complete strangers every day, all day. Um, and so they have announced that they are shortening the time of isolation from 10 days to five if people's symptoms have cleared or are resolving and that they should simply wear a mask for those next five days. And again, they also left out the previous requirement of a negative test before returning to work. Now, they insist this is based on the science that people are most infectious during the one or two days prior to symptom onset. However, this data is based on earlier variants and does not take into account the fact that Omicron is much more infectious. And besides that, the data suggests that a large amount of people continue to be infectious after those first five days. The CDC even cited a paper to this effect from the UK, which suggested that around 31% of people were still infectious five days after a positive test. However, they used this simply as their justification for why people should continue to wear masks for those last five days. And again, to me, all of this smacks of pressure from the airlines and other groups that have been complaining of employee shortages because of the prevalence of infection. And in fact, in response, Walmart has already rolled out a new policy cutting paid sick time for infected employees from two weeks to one based on the new recommendations. Now, I'm very sure that many other corporations will be following suit soon. You know, I've been contemplating <laughs> starting some other project, maybe uh, a podcast or YouTube uh, short series of uh, videos or um, podcasts called You're Not Mad at Science, You're Mad at Capitalism. Um, and this is definitely one of those places where I am mad at capitalism. Um, and so, yeah. And then to top it off, the CDC then gave out mixed messages about home antigen tests. They are not 
quantitative tests, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky argued in a White House briefing Wednesday. They are qualitative tests to diagnose. Later clarifying, these tests are for qualitative purposes, not quantitative purposes, meaning we can't tell how transmissible you are based on a positive or negative test. However, critics were quick to point out a 2020 paper co-written by Walensky herself in the journal Health Affairs, which notes, the more virus in the airway, the greater the likelihood of a positive antigen result. What that means is that, conveniently, there is a high degree of overlap between the period of maximal infectiousness and the period during which the antigen-based test is more likely to yield positive results. Sounds pretty definitive to me. Critics speculate that this is another turn by the CDC to downplay a rush on medical supplies, such as when they first downplayed the importance of masks in order to quell, try to quell hoarding and to reduce and to prevent reduction in supplies for healthcare workers. Since Omicron has hit, home tests have become scarce, with many stores selling out, and those that have them have jacked up the prices, as deals to sell them at cost expired in December. And I'll note that the CDC again denies that this is the reason. But at this point, the political wing of the agency does not inspire great hope in me. And while the Biden administration has pledged to buy 500 million rapid tests and distribute them across the country beginning this month, it may be too little too late. In addition, because Omicron is so different from prior strains, the FDA has suggested that rapid tests might actually be less sensitive to detecting Omicron. Now, this isn't to say they aren't useful anymore, just that if you get a negative result but still feel unwell, you should retest on the next day or seek out a more sensitive PCR test. And obviously, PCR tests are the best um, when it comes to this, but once again, they are in many places scarce. And so it's hard to see how downplaying antigen tests, which people might have already gotten and have in their households, to tell them that, oh, those aren't, you know, necessarily useful. It's very frustrating. <laughs> um a lot of this is very frustrating and, um, you know, the government is, I suppose, doing the best it can. Um, I personally feel like it could be doing a lot more, um, but that's just me and I am, of course, not in the government. Um, and so I think that they really, really are struggling, um, and I just wish that they would be a little bit more cautious with their statements and a little more science-based because even though you say the science is good, that's not based on Omicron, which we know is a next level of infectiousness. And it is not, you know, it, it, while it does seem to be less severe than Delta, because of the sheer 
increased transmissibility and the large number of unvaccinated people, it is still hospitalizing and killing a lot of people, including hospitalizing children, with the number doubling in the last week, according to the Washington Post tracker. The thing that makes Omicron less severe in adults, that it stays mainly in the upper airway, is actually a detriment for small children who actually have larger trouble with upper airway infections. And so we're seeing a big bump in children being hospitalized for COVID. And um, it always frustrates me when people talk about how, oh, children aren't going to be affected by it. So why are we making them wear masks? Um, You know, Tucker Carlson and all of those people who talk about how it's inhumane to have children wearing masks just makes me so, so frustrated because they are getting COVID. They are becoming infected. They are getting hospitalized. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And so, yeah. Overall, the advice stays the same. Try to avoid potential infection altogether by getting the three shot regimen by social distancing, wearing a mask, and avoiding places that are densely packed if at all possible. It's just something that makes sense. And it's very frustrating. Um, you know, I'm I'm getting increasingly <laughs> intolerant of people who know better and yet tell others that they shouldn't get the vaccine. Um, I will, I will give him props that President Trump recently defended the vaccine. I know he did it because he's an inveterate narcissist, not because he actually thinks that the science is good and that it's a thing that should happen. He just is promoting it because, in my opinion, again, he is the one who thinks that he created it um, because he, you know, threw some money at pharmaceutical companies. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> but you'll notice that he even got booed by his own constituents. And there have been a whole bunch of things online saying about how, you know, Trump is too old and out of touch to know the real thing that's going on and that it's really terrible and that he just doesn't know it because he's too out of touch with non-mainstream media. And it's just, it's so frustrating. (laughs) Um, So I know I'm probably preaching to the converted. So I'm going to, going to put this down for tonight and uh, move on. So we are going to move on again to the better part of tonight's fair. And so we're going to start off with a very cool finding. Researchers have found 124 miles from the Gulf of Mexico, an oasis of mangrove salt-tolerant trees flourishing along a freshwater river in Tabasco, Mexico. The area was isolated during the last interglacial period around 125,000 years ago. We found these beautiful lagoons, a beautiful forest of red mangroves, 
It's like a lost world, said marine ecologist Octavio Alberto of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego, or sorry, San Diego, uh, in a phone call with Gizmodo. Alberto is part of a team which explored the area recently, um, over the last couple of years, and conducted a genetic analysis of the forest, along with geological surveys, in order to determine the age of this misplaced ecosystem. They did a survey of the flora present in the mangrove forests, as well as modeling where the sea level would have been during the Pleistocene epoch, which began over 2 million years ago and ended almost 12,000 years ago. They published their findings a few months ago in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The area was discovered by co-author Carlos Borrello, uh, or Borrello, a botanist at the Universidad Juarez Atatoma de Tabasco on the banks of the San Pedro Martir River. I used to fish here and play on these mangroves as a kid, but we never knew precisely how they got here, Borello said in a UC San Diego press release. That was the driving question that brought the team together. Their modeling was supported by marine gastropod fossils found in the area, indicating that in the past, this had indeed been a marine ecosystem. This would have been during a time when the polar ice caps were completely melted and the seas were some 20 to 30 feet higher than at present. Paula Ezkura, science program manager at the Climate Science Alliance, conducted the sea level modeling and noted that the coastal plains of the southern Gulf of Mexico are so low-lying that a relatively small change in sea level could have dramatic impacts inland. She also noted the inter interdisciplinary nature of the work to discover the secrets of this amazing place. Each piece of the story alone is not sufficient, but when taken together, the genetics, geology, botany, and field observations tell an incredible story. Each researcher involved lent their expertise that allowed us to uncover the mystery of a 100,000-plus-year-old forest, said Iskura. Now, the mangrove started out in a normal place, in on the edge of a sea. But when the sea retreated as the ice caps uh, once again froze over and sea level dropped, they actually were able to continue to hold on in this area, leading them to become what is called a relict, a vestige of an ancient landscape that has managed to survive into modern times. They believe that the forest was able to survive because of the unique chemistry of the fresh water that replaced the sea. The water here is rich in calcium carbonate because the Tabasco region is rich in limestone rock. Calcium-rich waters can substitute for seawater in very rare conditions. They identified nearly 100 species that usually live near the oceans, including species of cacti and orchids living and thriving in the region. Unfortunately, as with everything, this can't be a pristine good. Because unfortunately, the area is under threat. 
Portions of the forest were cut down in the 70s as land was cleared for potential cattle ranches. We hope our results convince the government of Tabasco and Mexico's environmental administration of the need to protect this ecosystem, they said. The story of Pleistocene glacial cycles is written in the DNA of its plants, waiting for scientists to decipher it. But more importantly, the San Pedro mangroves are warning us about the dramatic impact that climate change could have on the coastal plains of the Gulf of Mexico if we do not take urgent action to stop the emission of greenhouse gases. So basically, if the polar ice caps start melting again, a lot of that low-lying area of Mexico is going to start to become undersea again. And I think that's probably going to be pretty upsetting for the people who already live there. And so, again, this is one of those stories where they found this amazing thing and it's very cool, but it also talks about how all of these amazing ecosystems that we have pretty much everywhere these days are under threat even in places that are considered to be reserves and things like that, a lot of times they're still being threatened. Um, in America, every time there's a Republican in the White House, suddenly logging rights are up and, you know, drilling rights are up for uh, sale in national parks. In Alaska, which is one of the actually true last places that is has a lot of land that is wild and has been untouched. Um, and of course, we're already messing with Alaskan because of climate change. And so, you know, last summer they had incredible heat waves like they've never had before. Um, and it's just, it's very frustrating. And so I think that with COVID, some things have kind of got pushed back from our consciousness because we're so worried about COVID all the time that we have trouble keeping up with other things, but we still do have an extreme looming environmental disaster on our hands. And I don't know what the solution is um, because a lot of smarter people than me don't know what the solution is because we have solutions, technical solutions that we could employ, but we don't have public will. And you need to have public will in order to be able to make this happen. And I just don't know how we're going to find that, where that's going to come from. Um, because humans are terrible about long-term timelines. And I mean, unfortunately, it is a structural part of our brain. There isn't a lot that we can do about that. Um, but we have to find ways to start doing better. And again, I know I'm preaching to the converted, I'm almost sure, but it's important to put it out there sometimes. Um, sorry about if you can hear sirens in the background. Obviously, it's been snowy today, so there are definitely some people who are having trouble. Um, be careful this evening. If you're driving, it might be slick again because everything was wet earlier in the day. And so please be careful. Definitely don't want anyone to have any issues. 
All right. So I think this is a good place to take a break, do some show promos and some PSAs. And then when we come back, we will talk about um, a new experiment with environmental DNA. Um, So please do stay tuned for that. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Welcome back to Evidence-Based Radio. Okay, we are going to move on to a story about eDNA, or environmental DNA. A new study shows that researchers were able to identify 74 species of animals at two zoos from their DNA contained within air samples. Now, this is another proof of concept for how this new technology of environmental DNA can be a powerful new tool for conservation and managing wildlife. Now, we talked previously about a study from the UK which detected naked mole rat and human DNA from samples of air taken from a lab-based burrow. But taking open-air samples was another level of figuring out whether or not this could be used in the wild. Two different teams, one in Denmark and one a team from the UK and Canada, 
actually both set up very similar experimental designs without knowing about one another, which I think is very cool. Christina Islas Lingard, and I'm positive I'm misspelling that because it's uh, Scandinavian, and so I do feel bad, um, but uh, is a postdoc researcher at the University of Copenhagen's Globe Institute. And along with her colleague Christine Bowman and other researchers, they devised a vacuum filter that could pick up particles of DNA within the air. I had a very good gut feeling about this. I just knew I had to do this study, Bowman said, recalling the first grant application she wrote for the project, which was denied. But in 2019, they did receive a grant and went to the Copenhagen Zoo, armed with a water vacuum designed by Lingard, as well as two blower fans, kind of like those found in a laptop, but with a 3D printed housing so that filters could be attached to them. Lingard apparently spent a lot of time finding just the right vacuum and filters while she was stuck in her apartment during the early days of the pandemic. They collected samples from three areas, a stable, which contained okapi and a tiger, the outdoor holding area, and inside the rainforest house, featuring birds, reptiles, sloths, and other tropical animals. If you've been to a rainforest room in a zoo, you probably, or building, you can probably get the gist. The vacuums sucked up the air and bits of animal traces got caught in the filters or in the water, which could be run through a filter later. They took 40 samples and identified 49 species from a rhino, all the way to guppies that had been swimming in the rainforest exhibit. They found between 6 and 21 animal traces in each sample. They even found traces of native water vole and red squirrel. We were absolutely falling off the chair, amazed, surprised, shocked, Bowman said. The UK slash Canada team took a similar approach, notes author Elizabeth Clare, an assistant professor at York University's Department of Biology. This team took 70 samples from the air of the Hemerton Zoo Park in the UK. Her team found DNA from 25 species such as dingoes and tigers. 17 were zoo species, while the rest were more local things, such as the Eurasian hedgehog, which is actually endangered in the UK, which is another way in which this kind of eDNA can be helpful. And so you can find things that you don't normally see a lot of, but might be living in the area nonetheless. And so they found that they could collect animal traces outside of a sealed building, and both teams found that they could detect the traces of animal food, such as chicken fed to, well, larger predators. The teams, again, had no idea about their others about the other's work until it was already well in progress. I've never seen such identical experiments put together at exactly the same time that didn't have any knowledge of each other, Claire said. When you're doing something a little bit crazy, 
vacuuming DNA out of the sky, it's really nice when someone else has also been able to do the same thing and independently confirmed that it works. And so that's pretty cool. Um, And so as the work develops, it could become a very important tool. But both teams note that there is still a lot of work to do. Environmental factors like wind, sunlight, and terrain differences could impact results. And the optimal way to collect the DNA from different areas is still an open question. It's very, very early in this, but the potential is enormous, Claire said. So yeah, that is pretty fantastic. And uh, once again... (laughs) I think I always bring this up when we talk about eDNA. Um, uh, they did that. I think it's because they the first time I heard about eDNA is when they were doing it in Loch Ness. So every time I think about eDNA now, I think about uh, proving or disproving the uh, existence of Bigfoot, <laughs> which I know is silly. I do. I get it. Um, but it's important to be able to laugh every once in a while. Um, so, yeah. I'm, I know it's silly, but I will be very disappointed if it's proven positively that there is no book Bigfoot. I like the fact that there is a bit of mystery still to it. Slim, though, I believe the chances are. Okay, so now we're going to switch gears and talk about some actual animals. We'll start with a slightly old story. It's been sitting in my archives, waiting for kind of the right moment, and I kind of wanted to have a sort of lighthearted time starting off the new year. And so um, I want to make a little bit of fun of myself by talking about a story where I have to admit that researchers have found something that humans are better at than birds. It is sad, but true. Um, I'm a big component of, proponent, I should say, of animal cognition, and I really enjoy stories about how animals can do things that humans can do just as well, or sometimes even better than, uh, you know, if they're compared against children at roughly the same sort of cognitive age. But in this case, a team of researchers at the University of Auckland found that New Zealand parrots are smart enough to use a touchscreen but are not able to distinguish between real and virtual imagery. So if you've never seen a Kia, which is the adorable, pudgy, uh, ground-based parrots of New Zealand, please, as soon as you finish listening to this, or if you're listening to this and you're near a computer, do it now, uh, look them up because they're ridiculous and wonderful and just so good. They're just... They are one of those things that just makes uh, the world a slightly better place because they live in it, Uh, despite the fact that unfortunately they're also endangered and um, have problems with lead poisoning, for instance. Uh, Everything is terrible, but we're we're focusing on the good. And so uh, the first thing they did was they taught them to lick a touchscreen. Now, they had to do that because their beaks are made of keratin, which isn't electrically conductive. And so they don't work with this touchscreen, so they had to get them to use their tongue. And they that was pretty straightforward for them. They figured it out pretty quickly. They were then shown three experimental designs. In the first, they were shown a seesaw and two boxes. 
A ball was placed on the seesaw and fell into one of the boxes. The Kia then need, needed to indicate which box the ball had landed in. And then, of course, they would get a treat. The second experiment showed the same setup, but fully virtual. Again, the Kias aced the test. They were then shown, the, they then showed the Kia a hybrid version with a virtual seesaw and ball, but real boxes. And so this time the, the Kia would indicate the box that would have been correct if the ball was real rather than virtual. And so this suggests that they expected the virtual ball to continue into the box like a real ball. Now they did run some other tests to make sure that this wasn't just a fluke um, and that it really was a problem with distinguishing between uh, the virtual and uh, reality and real reality. And so it does in fact suggest that they cannot separate them. Similar tests run on children, however, show that human children can always tell the difference between reality and simulation. Now, more research will have to be done on other species to test whether this is a feature found among other animals. Um, and it may be, it, depend, it might depend on visual um, acuity, what kinds of um, environments the animals live in. We just don't know. Obviously, you have to do more um, work. But I thought that I should share that sadly there is something that my uh, beloved um, bird friends cannot do. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to a story that you've probably seen if you keep up with any kind of um, science type stuff because everybody is talking about how it's blowing their minds, but it really isn't as crazy as it seems. Let's talk about goldfish driving a motorized vehicle. Driving is in quotations here. Um, so Shakar Givon and colleagues at Ben Gurion University in the Negrev, Israel, created a fish tank on wheels that was equipped so that the goldfish within the tank was able to guide the movement of the vehicle as a whole. Now, the goal was to see whether fish's navigation skills are able to be transferred to unfamiliar settings. The concept is called domain transfer methodology, in which, quote, one species is embedded in another species environment and must, must cope with an otherwise familiar task. And so they noted that in their paper published in Behavioral Brain Research. Now, the fish-operated vehicle, or FOV, used a downward-looking camera to track the fish's position within the tank and if the fish was near one of the walls and faces faced outward. The algorithm would move the FOV in the direction indicated. It was also equipped with LIDAR to prevent the fish from, well, running the FOV into a wall. Six fish were involved in the study. It turns out, actually, uh, that this isn't the first FOV to be built. Uh, one was previously built by a company in the Netherlands called Studio Deep, uh, D-I-I-P, 
um, again, apologies for pronunciations. Uh, but this was meant to showcase the capabilities of computer vision technology, which is what they work on, rather than anything really having to do with the fish. So it doesn't count. Um, but I also thought it was funny that this is not the first time somebody has thought to put a goldfish in a motorized vehicle. <laughs> um, so there were six fish, which, of course, small study, but, you know, this is a proof of concept kind of deal. They were taught to drive in 30-minute sessions three times a week, every two days, with a maximum of 20 trials in order to avoid overfeeding, um, because obviously each successful attempt would lead to a food reward. The vehicle was designed to detect the fish's position in the water tank and react by activating the wheels such that the vehicle moved in the specific direction according to the fish's position, noted the study. In this way, the vehicle's reactions to the fish's position allowed the fish to drive the vehicle in the environment. And so the first scenario involved the fish navigating to a pink target from the center of the enclosure. They apparently learned how to do this rather quickly, uh, and they were also able to come at it from different angles. They repeated the task from new starting positions and added decoy targets of different colors. Apparently, that had no issues for the fish. They passed with flying colors. Um, and so this was, of course, made even more remarkable when you realize that they're mapping an environment through several layers of distortion, including the water, plexiglass, and air, all having to be looked through theoretically. But of course, I say theoretically, because ultimately they were still doing what fish do, swimming around, heading towards a target and getting a reward. Further research could adapt the FOV so that the fish would have to, for instance, change their behavior in order to reach the goal. Such as, for instance, swimming away from the object in order to move closer to it. And so this would, I think, better help solidify the fact that they were indeed navigating the larger experimental setup in a way that's meaningful. Um, I mean, I think it's still very cool. Um, I don't think that they're going to become our overlords anytime soon. Uh, but again, they continue to show that they have some pretty amazing skills nonetheless. So... Um, you know, the old card about uh, the memory of a goldfish. Goldfish are actually pretty cool, and they actually have uh, a pretty good uh, motor, motor systems, uh, learning systems. Um, you know, they're, they're not as uh, silly as we make them out to be. Um, but of course, it's hard to tell with fish because they are rather fundamentally different from us. But the core idea is that presumably they were able to navigate so well in what is essentially a terrestrial environment. And so the authors think this might hint at the idea that the way space is represented in their brain may actually have some sort of universality across species. And so another thing that they suggested uh, could be done to further um, this research would be to get a setup 
for a terrestrial animal to navigate in an aquatic environment. And so this would show more about that universality of navigational skills. And I'm not just talking about, you know, your average dog in a pool. Um, <laughs> it would probably be something smaller, like a rat, for instance. Um, and so they could set up something, though rats have been doing swimming tests forever. They have to find something that it has to be really weird in order for it to be able to do it. Um, or something that's like never near water. Um, some sort of animal that lives in the like middle of the desert, maybe like a gecko or something. But anyways, I digress. Uh, previous work has actually shown that both dogs and rats can drive vehicles, um, but they weren't tested in such an in unfamiliar environment as underwater. Apparently, they were testing the rats' um, stress responses. Apparently, they really liked to drive. Um, and that actually kind of made me happy because as much as I know it's terrible for the environment, I also really like to drive. <laughs> um, but anyways, I digress. Um, so yeah, so I think it's really interesting, um, to find that goldfish could drive around, but again, they were in a fish tank. Um, they were just swimming around in the fish tank like they would any other time. Um, you know, this wasn't, they weren't, uh, you know, connected via a neural net or anything like that. Um, they were just navigating within a fish tank. And so I don't think you're going to find gold, uh, goldfish robots coming along anytime soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, so very cool. And um, still kind of sad about the Kias. Um, you know, they were talking about that they've had problems. And I'm like, maybe if they found some that didn't have problems, they'd be able to know. Um, <laughs> anyways, it's a new year. Let's, let's try and have a little bit of fun and uh, talk about now something that may not seem so fun, but I think it's really interesting. Um, and so we're going to move away from animals and talk about concrete. Now, again, I know this might not sound all that exciting, but Roman concrete is really, really special. Like it is totally mind blowing when you think that there are Roman ruins that are not so ruined that are from 2000 years ago and they're still standing and they are built with concrete. If you think about modern concrete, <laughs> modern concrete is not going to be good in that manner. And so it's incredibly stable and durable. And again, they've survived into modern times in a way that modern concrete buildings, they would have to have constant upkeep. Our modern uh, concrete is great for sort of short-term building, um, for being sort of underneath things, but to survive millennia, that's, that's not happening. I mean, I'm sure you've seen lots of places where there is concrete that has weathered away and, you know, it's just not, um, made in the same way that these amazing, uh, Roman concretes were made. 
And so one structure, a large cylindrical tomb of the first century no noblewoman, um, Caecilia Metella, has been examined and reported on by researchers from MIT and colleagues, and they have published their results in the Journal of the American Ceramic Society. It turns out that the quality of the concrete may exceed that of her male contemporaries' monuments, even, because of the chemical makeup of this particular mixture. It contains volcanic aggregate and has unusual chemical interactions with rain and groundwater that have happened over the last 2,000 years. Lead co-authors of the study, Admir Masik, Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at MIT, and Marie Jackson, Research Associate Professor of Geology and Ge Geophysics at the University of Utah, work together to study the mineral composition of this ancient structure. Understanding the formation and processes of ancient materials can inform researchers of new ways to create durable, sustainable building materials for the future, said Masik. The tomb of Caecilia Metella is one of the oldest structures still standing, offering insights that can inspire modern construction. Located on the Appian Way, the structure features a rotunda-shaped a rotunda -shaped tower atop a square base and is around 70 feet tall and 100 feet in diameter. It is considered one of the best preserved monuments along the Appian Way, which is where many of Rome's elite were buried. And so um, she was a uh, rather elite noblewoman. She married into a very good family. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so she had the uh, money and influence to get a pretty swanky uh, monument on the Appian Way. The construction of this very innovative and robust monument and landmark on the Via Appia Antica indicates that she was held in high respect, said Jackson, and the concrete fabric 2,050 years later reflects a strong and resilient presence. And so the Roman architect Vitruvius explained during the time period in which this construction was actually being built that these kinds of structures were built with thick walls of coarse brick or volcanic rock aggregate bound with mortar made of lime and volcanic tephra, which he suggested created structures that, over a long passage of time, do not fall into ruins. And today, he's correct. Many of them still stand. Now, I believe we actually have talked about, for instance, some breakwaters that have survived despite millennia of being uh, bombarded by salt water, um, which is crazy, um, you know, for for probably at least a millennia afterwards, nobody knew how to make marine concrete. No one knew how to make concrete that could be concrete and stay underwater. Um, you know, the Romans really did something special. And so it turns out that the crystals, that there are crystals on the mineral lucite, which is rich in potassium and is found in the volcanic aggregate, which over time dissolved and helped to remodel and reorganize the interface between the volcanic aggregates and cementitious binding matrix to improve the cohesion of the concrete. 
basically between the middle part and the actual mortar. Focusing on designing modern concretes with constantly reinforcing interfacial zones might provide us with yet another strategy to improve the durability of modern construction materials, says Masick. Doing this through the integration of time-proven Roman wisdom provides a sustainable strategy that could improve the longevity of our modern solutions by orders of magnitude. And so that is pretty impressive. And so it turns out that, again, the um, really important thing was that um, Lucite, which was able to change the chemistry of the what's called uh, cash binding phase, calcium, aluminum, silicate, silicate, and hydrate. So in another Roman building um, from about um, 120 years later or so, that ends up with a lot of the mineral um, stratlingite. And so that was has still stands, but it's not quite as amazing as uh, this other building. And so it turns out that the potassium helps re reconfigure the cash binding phase. And so basically it's continued to remodel everything and that's why it survives today. It turns out that the interfacial zones in the ancient Roman concrete of the tomb of Caecilia Metella are constantly evolving through long-term remodeling, Masick says. These remodeling processes reinforce interfacial zones and potentially contribute to improved mechanical performance and resistance to failure of the ancient materials. And so that is very cool. And that brings us to the end of tonight. Um, thank you so much for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Once again, Happy New Year. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.